Chapter Twenty One of The Custom of the Country. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. The Custom of the Country by Edith Wharton. Chapter Twenty One. The spring in New York proceeded through more than its usual extremes of temperature to the threshold of a sultry June. Ralph Marvel, wearily bent to his task, felt the fantastic humours of the weather as only one more incoherence in the general chaos of his case. It was strange enough, after four years of marriage, to find himself again in his old brown room in Washington Square. It was hardly there that he had expected Pegasus to land him, and, like a man returning to the scenes of his childhood, he found everything on a much smaller scale than he had imagined. Had the Dagonet boundaries really narrowed, or had the breach in the walls of his own life let in a wider vision? Certainly there had come to be other differences between his present and his former self than that embodied in the presence of his little boy in the next room. Paul, in fact, was now the chief link between Ralph and his past. Concerning his son he still felt and thought, in a general way, in the terms of the Dagonet tradition. He still wanted to implant in Paul some of the reserves and discriminations which divided that tradition from the new spirit of limitless concession. But for himself it was different. Since his transaction with Moffat he had had the sense of living under a new dispensation. He was not sure that it was any worse than the other, but then he was no longer very sure about anything. Perhaps this growing indifference was merely the reaction from a long nervous strain. That his mother and sister thought it so was shown by the way in which they mutely watched and hovered. Their discretion was like the hushed tread about a sickbed. They permitted themselves no criticism of Undine. He was asked no awkward questions, subjected to no ill-timed sympathy. They simply took him back, on his own terms, into the life he had left them to, and their silence had none of those subtle implications of disapproval which may be so much more wounding than speech. For a while he received a weekly letter from Undine. Vague and disappointing though they were, these missives helped him through the days, but he looked forward to them rather as a pretext for replies than for their actual contents. Undine was never at a loss for the spoken word. Ralph had often wondered at her verbal range and her fluent use of terms outside the current vocabulary. She had certainly not picked these up in books, since she never opened one. They seemed rather like some odd transmission of her preaching grandparents' oratory but in her brief and colourless letters she repeated the same bold statements in the same few terms. She was well. She had been round with Bertha Shellam. She had dined with the Jim Driscolls, or May Beringer, or Dickie Bowles. The weather was too lovely, or too awful. Such was the gist of her news. On the last page she hoped Paul was well, and sent him a kiss. But she never made a suggestion concerning his care, or asked a question about his pursuits. One could only infer that, knowing in what good hands he was, she judged such solicitude superfluous, and it was thus that Ralph put the matter to his mother. "'Of course she's not worrying about the boy. Why should she? She knows that with you and Laura he's as happy as a king.' To which Mrs. Marvel would answer gravely, "'When you write, be sure to say I shan't put on his thinner flannels as long as this east wind lasts.' As for her husband's welfare, Undine's sole allusion to it consisted in the invariable expression of the hope that he was getting along all right. The phrase was always the same, and Ralph learned to know just how far down the third page to look for it. In a postscript she sometimes asked him to tell her mother about a new way of doing hair or cutting a skirt, and this was usually the most eloquent passage of the letter. 
What satisfaction he extracted from these communications he would have found it hard to say. Yet when they did not come he missed them hardly less than if they had given him all he craved. Sometimes the mere act of holding the blue or mauve sheet and breathing its scent was like holding his wife's hand and being enveloped in her fresh young fragrance. The sentimental disappointment vanished in the penetrating physical sensation. In other moods it was enough to trace the letters of the first line and the last for the desert of perfunctory phrases between the two to vanish, leaving him only the vision of their interlaced names, as of a mystic bond which her own hand had tied. Or else he saw her, closely, palpably before him, as she sat at her writing-table, frowning and a little flushed, her bent nape showing the light on her hair, her short lip pulled up by the effort of composition, and this picture had the violent reality of dream-images on the verge of waking. At other times, as he read her letter, he felt simply that at least in the moment of writing it she had been with him. But in one of the last she had said, to excuse a bad blot and an incoherent sentence, "'Everybody's talking to me at once, and I don't know what I'm writing.' That letter he had thrown into the fire. After the first few weeks the letters came less and less regularly. At the end of two months they ceased. Ralph had got into the habit of watching for them on the days when a foreign post was due, and as the weeks went by without a sign, he began to invent excuses for leaving the office earlier and hurrying back to Washington Square to search the letter-box for a big tinted envelope with a straggling, blotted superscription. Undine's departure had given him a momentary sense of liberation. At that stage in their relations any change would have brought relief. But now that she was gone, he knew she could never really go. Though his feeling for her had changed, it still ruled his life. If he saw her in her weakness, he felt her in her power, the power of youth and physical radiance that clung to his disenchanted memories as the scent she used clung to her letters. Looking back at their four years of marriage, he began to ask himself if he had done all he could to draw her half-formed spirit from its sleep. Had he not expected too much at first, and grown too indifferent in the sequel? After all, she was still in the toy age, and perhaps the very extravagance of his love had retarded her growth, helped to imprison her in a little circle of frivolous illusions. But the last months had made a man of him, and when she came back he would know how to lift her to the height of his experience. So he would reason, day by day, as he hastened back to Washington Square. But when he opened the door, and his first glance at the hall table showed him there was no letter there, his illusions shriveled down to their weak roots. She had not written. She did not mean to write. He and the boy were no longer a part of her life. When she came back everything would be as it had been before, with the dreary difference that she had tasted new pleasures, and that their absence would take the savour from all he had to give her. Then the coming of another foreign mail would lift his hopes, and as he hurried home he would imagine new reasons for expecting a letter. Week after week he swung between the extremes of hope and dejection, and at last, when the strain had become unbearable, he cabled her. The answer ran, Very well, best love, writing. But the promised letter never came. He went on steadily with his work. He even passed through a phase of exaggerated energy. But his baffled youth fought in him for air. Was this to be the end? Was he to wear his life out in useless drudgery? The plain prose of it, of course, was that the economic situation remained unchanged by the sentimental catastrophe, and that he must go on working for his wife and child. But at any rate, as it was mainly for Paul that he would henceforth work, 
It should be on his own terms, and according to his inherited notions of straightness. He would never again engage in any transaction resembling his compact with Moffat. Even now he was not sure there had been anything crooked in that, but the fact of his having instinctively referred the point to Mr. Spragg, rather than to his grandfather, implied a presumption against it. His partners were quick to profit by his sudden spurt of energy, and his work grew no lighter. He was not only the youngest and most recent member of the firm, but the one who had so far added least to the volume of its business. His hours were the longest, his absences, as summer approached, the least frequent, and the most grudgingly accorded. No doubt his associates knew that he was pressed for money and could not risk a break. They worked him, and he was aware of it, and submitted because he dared not lose his job. But the long hours of mechanical drudgery were telling on his active body and undisciplined nerves. He had begun too late to subject himself to the persistent mortification of spirit and flesh which is a condition of the average business life. And after the long, dull days in the office, the evenings at his grandfather's whist-table did not give him the counter-stimulus he needed. Almost everyone had gone out of town. But now and then Miss Ray came to dine, and Ralph, seated beneath the family portraits and opposite the desiccated Harriet, who had already faded to the semblance of one of her own great-aunts, listened languidly to the kind of talk that the originals might have exchanged about the same table when New York gentility centred in the battery and the bowling green. Mr. Dagonet was always pleasant to see and hear, but his sarcasms were growing faint and recondite. They had as little bearing on life as the humours of a restoration comedy. As for Mrs. Marvel and Miss Ray, they seemed to the young man even more spectrally remote. Hardly anything that mattered to him existed for them, and their prejudices reminded him of signposts warning off trespassers who have long since ceased to intrude. Now and then he dined at his club, and went on to the theatre with some young men of his own age, but he left them afterward, half vexed with himself for not being in the humour to prolong the adventure. There were moments when he would have liked to affirm his freedom in however commonplace a way, moments when the vulgarest way would have seemed the most satisfying. But he always ended by walking home alone and tiptoeing upstairs through the sleeping house, lest he should wake his boy. On Saturday afternoons, when the business world was hurrying to the country for golf and tennis, he stayed in town and took Paul to see the Spraggs. Several times since his wife's departure he had tried to bring about closer relations between his own family and Undine's, and the ladies of Washington Square, in their eagerness to meet his wishes, had made various friendly advances to Mrs. Spragg. But they were met by a mute resistance, which made Ralph suspect that Undine's strictures on his family had taken root in her mother's brooding mind, and he gave up the struggle to bring together what had been so effectually put to sunder. If he regretted his lack of success, it was chiefly because he was so sorry for the Spraggs. Soon after Undine's marriage they had abandoned their polychrome suite at the Stentorian, and since then their peregrinations had carried them through half the hotels of the metropolis. Undine, who had early discovered her mistake in thinking hotel life fashionable, had tried to persuade her parents to take a house of their own. But though they refrained from taxing her with inconsistency, they did not act on her suggestion. Mrs. Spragg seemed to shrink from the thought of going back to housekeeping, and Ralph suspected that she depended on the transit from hotel to hotel as the one element of variety in her life. As for Mr. Spragg, it was impossible to imagine anyone in whom the domestic sentiments were more completely unlocalized and disconnected from any fixed habits, and he was probably aware of his changes of abode chiefly as they obliged him to ascend from the subway, or descend from the elevated, a few blocks higher up or lower down. 
neither husband nor wife complained to ralph of their frequent displacements or assigned to them any cause save the vague one of guessing they could do better but ralph noticed that the decreasing luxury of their life synchronized with undine's growing demands for money during the last few months they had transferred themselves to the malibran a tall narrow structure resembling a grain elevator divided into cells where linoleum and lincrusta simulated the stucco and marble of the stentorian and fagged businessmen and their families consumed the watery stews dispensed by coloured help in the grey twilight of a basement dining-room mrs spragge had no sitting-room and paul and his father had to be received in one of the long public parlours between ladies seated at rickety desks in the throes of correspondence and groups of listlessly conversing residents and callers the spraggs were intensely proud of their grandson and ralph perceived that they would have liked to see paul charging uproariously from group to group and thrusting his bright curls and cherubic smile upon the general attention the fact that the boy preferred to stand between his grandfather's knees and play with mr spragg's masonic emblem or dangle his legs from the arms of mrs spragg's chair seemed to his grandparents evidence of ill-health or undue repression and he was subjected by mrs spragg to searching inquiries as to how his food sat and whether he didn't think his papa was too strict with him a more embarrassing problem was raised by the surprise in the shape of peanut candy or chocolate creams which he was invited to hunt for in grandma's pockets and which ralph had to confiscate on the way home lest the dietary rules of washington square should be too visibly infringed sometimes ralph found mrs heeny ruddy and jovial seated in the armchair opposite mrs spragg and regaling her with selections from a new batch of clippings during undine's illness of the previous winter mrs heeny had become a familiar figure to paul who had learned to expect almost as much from her bag as from his grandmother's pockets so that the intemperate saturdays at the malibran were usually followed by languid and abstemious sundays in washington square mrs heeny being unaware of this sequel to her bounties formed the habit of appearing regularly on saturdays and while she chatted with his grandmother the little boy was encouraged to scatter the grimy carpet with face creams and bunches of clippings in his thrilling quest for the sweets at the bottom of her bag i declare if he ain't in just as much of a hurry for everything as his mother she exclaimed one day in her rich rolling voice and stooping to pick up a long strip of newspaper which paul had flung aside she added as she smoothed it out i guess if he was a little mite older he'd be better pleased with this and with the candy it's the very thing i was trying to find for you the other day mrs spragg she went on holding the bit of paper at arm's length and she began to read out with a loudness proportioned to the distance between her eyes and the text with two such sprinters as Pete Van Degen and Dicky Bowles to set the pace, it's no wonder the New York set in Paris has struck a livelier gait than ever this spring. It's a high-pressure season, and no mistake, and no one lags behind less than the fascinating Mrs. Ralph Marvel, who is to be seen daily and nightly in all the smartest restaurants and naughtiest theatres, with so many devoted swains in attendance that the rival beauties of both worlds are said to be making catty comments but then mrs marvell's gowns are almost as good as her looks and how can you expect the other women to stand for such a monopoly to escape the strain of these visits ralph once or twice tried the experiment of leaving paul with his grandparents and calling for him in the late afternoon but one day on re-entering the malibran he was met by a small abashed figure clad in a kaleidoscopic tartan and a green velvet cap with a silver thistle 
After this experience of the surprises of which Grandma was capable when she had a chance to take Paul shopping, Ralph did not again venture to leave his son, and their subsequent Saturdays were passed together in the sultry gloom of the Malibran. Conversation with the Spraggs was almost impossible. Ralph could talk with his father-in-law in his office, but in the hotel parlour Mr. Spraggs sat in a ruminating silence, broken only by the omission of an occasional, "'Well, well,' addressed to his grandson. As for Mrs. Spragg, her son-in-law could not remember having had a sustained conversation with her since the distant day when he had first called at the Centaurian and had been entertained, in Undine's absence, by her astonished mother. The shock of that encounter had moved Mrs. Spragg to eloquence. But Ralph's entrance into the family, without making him seem less of a stranger, appeared once for all to have relieved her of the obligation of finding something to say to him. The one question she invariably asked, "'You heard from Undy?' had been relatively easy to answer while his wife's infrequent letters continued to arrive. But a Saturday came when he felt the blood rise to his temples as, for the fourth consecutive week, he stammered out under the snapping eyes of Mrs. Heaney, "'No, not by this post either. I begin to think I must have lost a letter.' And it was then that Mr. Spragg, who had sat silently looking up at the ceiling, cut short his wife's exclamation by an inquiry about real estate in the Bronx. After that, Ralph noticed Mrs. Spragg never again renewed her question, and he understood that his father-in-law had guessed his embarrassment and wished to spare it. Ralph had never thought of looking for any delicacy of feeling under Mr. Spragg's large, lazy irony, and the incident drew the two men nearer together. Mrs. Spragg, for her part, was certainly not delicate, but she was simple and without malice, and Ralph liked her for her silent acceptance of her diminished state. Sometimes, as he sat between the lonely, primitive old couple, he wondered from what source Undine's voracious ambitions had been drawn. All she cared for, and attached importance to, was as remote from her parents' conception of life as her impatient greed from their passive stoicism. One hot afternoon, toward the end of June, Ralph suddenly wondered if Claire Van Degen were still in town. She had dined in Washington Square some ten days earlier, and he remembered her saying that she had sent the children down to Long Island, but that she herself meant to stay on in town till the heat grew unbearable. She hated her big showy place on Long Island. She was tired of the spring trip to London and Paris, where one met at every turn the faces one had grown sick of seeing all winter, and she declared that in the early summer New York was the only place in which one could escape from New Yorkers. She put the case amusingly, and it was like her to take up any attitude that went against the habits of her set. But she lived at the mercy of her moods, and one could never tell how long any one of them would rule her. As he sat in his office, with the noise and glare of the endless afternoon rising up in hot waves from the street, there wandered into Ralph's mind a vision of her shady drawing-room. All day it hung before him like the mirage of a spring before a dusty traveller. He felt a positive thirst for her presence, for the sound of her voice, the wide spaces and luxurious silences surrounding her. It was perhaps because on that particular day a spiral pain was twisting around in the back of his head, and digging in a little deeper with each twist, and because the figures on the balance sheet before him were hopping about like black imps in an infernal forward and back, that the picture hung there so persistently. It was a long time since he had wanted anything as much as, at that particular moment, he wanted to be with Claire and hear her voice, and as soon as he had ground out the day's measure of work he rang up the Van Degen Palace and learned that she was still in town. 
the lowered awnings of her inner drawing-room cast a luminous shadow on old cabinets and consoles and on the pale flowers scattered here and there in vases of bronze and porcelain claire's taste was as capricious as her moods and the rest of the house was not in harmony with this room there was in particular another drawing-room which she now described as peter's creation but which ralph knew to be partly hers a heavily decorated apartment where popple's portrait of her throned over a waste of gilt furniture it was characteristic that to-day she had had ralph shown in by another way and that as she had spared him the polyphonic drawing-room so she had skilfully adapted her own appearance to her soberer background she sat near the window reading in a clear cool dress and at his entrance she merely slipped a finger between the pages and looked up at him her way of receiving him made him feel that restlessness and stridency were as unlike her genuine self as the gilded drawing-room and that this quiet creature was the only real claire the claire who had once been so nearly his and who seemed to want him to know that she had never wholly been anyone else's why didn't you let me know you were still in town he asked as he sat down in the sofa corner near her chair her dark smile deepened i hoped you'd come and see one never knows with you he was looking about the room with a kind of confused pleasure in its pale shadows and spots of dark rich colour the old lacquer screen behind claire's head looked like a lustreless black pool with gold leaves floating on it and another piece a little table at her elbow had the brown bloom and the pear-like curves of an old violin i like to be here ralph said she did not make the mistake of asking then why do you never come instead she turned away and drew an inner curtain across the window to shut out the sunlight which was beginning to slant in under the awning the mere fact of her not answering and the final touch of well-being which her gesture gave reminded him of other summer days they had spent together long rambling boy and girl days in the hot woods and fields when they had never thought of talking to each other unless there was something they particularly wanted to say his tired fancy strayed off for a second to the thought of what it would have been like to come back at the end of the day to such a sweet community of silence but his mind was too crowded with importunate facts for any lasting view of visionary distances the thought faded and he merely felt how restful it was to have her near i'm glad you stayed in town you must let me come again he said i suppose you can't always get away she answered and she began to listen with grave intelligent eyes to his description of his tedious days with her eyes on him he felt the exquisite relief of talking about himself as he had not dared to talk to any one since his marriage he would not for the world have confessed his discouragement his consciousness of incapacity to undine and in washington square any hint of failure would have been taken as a criticism of what his wife demanded of him only to claire van degen could he cry out his present despondency and his loathing of the interminable task ahead a man doesn't know till he tries it how killing uncongenial work is and how it destroys the power of doing what one's fit for even if there's time for both but there's paul to be looked out for and i daren't chuck my job i'm in mortal terror of its chucking me little by little he slipped into a detailed recital of all his lesser worries the most recent of which was his experience with the Lipscombs, who, after a two-month's tenancy of the West End Avenue house, had decamped without paying their rent. Claire laughed contemptuously. Yes, I heard he'd come to grief and been suspended from the stock exchange, and I see in the papers that his wife's retort has been to sue for a divorce. Ralph knew that, like all their clan, 
his cousin regarded a divorce suit as a vulgar and unnecessary way of taking the public into one's confidence. His mind flashed back to the family feast in Washington Square, in celebration of his engagement. He recalled his grandfather's chance allusion to Mrs. Lipscomb, and Undine's answer, fluted out on her highest note. "'Oh, I guess she'll get a divorce pretty soon. He's been a disappointment to her.' Ralph could still hear the horrified murmur with which his mother had rebuked his laugh, for he had laughed, had thought Undine's speech fresh and natural. Now he felt the ironic rebound of her words. Heaven knew he had been a disappointment to her, and what was there in her own feeling or in her inherited prejudices to prevent her seeking the same redress as Mabel Lipscomb? He wondered if the same thought were in his cousin's mind. They began to talk of other things— books, pictures, plays, and one by one the closed doors opened and light was let into the dusty shuttered places. Claire's mind was neither keen nor deep. Ralph, in the past, had smiled at her rash ardours and vague intensities. But she had his own range of illusions, and a great gift of momentary understanding, and he had so long beaten his thoughts out against a blank wall of incomprehension that her sympathy seemed full of insight. She began by a question about his writing— but the subject was distasteful to him, and he turned to talk to a new book in which he had been interested. She knew enough of it to slip in the right word here and there, and thence they wandered on to kindred topics. Under the warmth of her attention his torpid ideas awoke again, and his eyes took their fill of pleasure as she leaned forward, her thin brown hands clasped on her knees, and her eager face reflecting all his feelings. There was a moment when the two currents of sensation were merged in one, and he began to feel confusedly that he was young and she was kind, and that there was nothing he would like better than to go on sitting there, not much caring what she said or how he answered, if only she would let him look at her and give him one of her thin brown hands to hold. Then the corkscrew in the back of his head dug into him again with a deeper thrust, and she seemed suddenly to recede to a greater distance and be divided from him by a fog of pain. The fog lifted after a minute, but it left him queerly remote from her, from the cool room with its scents and shadows, and from all the objects which, a moment before, had so sharply impinged upon his senses. It was as though he looked at it all through a rain-blurred pane, against which his hand would strike if he held it out to her. That impression passed also, and he found himself thinking how tired he was, and how little anything mattered. He recalled the unfinished piece of work on his desk, and for a moment had the odd illusion that it was there before him. She exclaimed, "'But are you going?' and her exclamation made him aware that he had left his seat and was standing in front of her. He fancied there was some kind of appeal in her brown eyes, but she was so dim and far off that he couldn't be sure of what she wanted, and the next moment he found himself shaking hands with her, and heard her saying something kind and cold about its having been so nice to see him. Halfway up the stairs, little Paul, shining and rosy from supper, lurked in ambush for his evening game. Ralph was fond of stooping down to let the boy climb up his outstretched arms to his shoulders, but today, as he did so, Paul's hug seemed to crush him in a vice, and the shout of welcome that accompanied it racked his ears like an explosion of steam-whistles. The queer distance between himself and the rest of the world was annihilated again. Everything stared and glared and clutched him. He tried to turn away his face from the child's hot kisses, and as he did so, he caught sight of a mauve envelope among the hats and sticks on the hall table. Instantly he paused Paul over to his nurse, 
stammered out a word about being tired, and sprang up the long flights to his study. The pain in his head had stopped, but his hands trembled as he tore open the envelope. Within it was a second letter, bearing a French stamp, and addressed to himself. It looked like a business communication, and had apparently been sent to Undine's hotel in Paris, and forwarded to him by her hand. Another bill, he reflected grimly, as he threw it aside and felt in the outer envelope for her letter. There was nothing there, and after a first sharp pang of disappointment, he picked up the enclosure and opened it. Inside was a lithographed circular, headed confidential, and bearing the Paris address of a firm of private detectives who undertook, in conditions of attested and inviolable discretion, to investigate delicate situations, look up doubtful antecedents, and furnish reliable evidence of misconduct, all in the most reasonable terms. For a long time Ralph sat and stared at this document. Then he began to laugh, and tossed it into the scrap basket. After that, with a groan, he dropped his head against the edge of his writing-table. End of chapter 21